Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 24th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The 24th of February, a day which will live in infamy. Indeed, a day we will remember for the rest of our lives and one the history books will mark as the beginning of a terrible war. Russia's brutal full-scale invasion began in the very early hours. Within hours, civilians were being killed in their homes and cut down on their streets. But the attack failed. Ukraine's leaders refused to flee. Kyiv did not fall. Europe and the West was united, and Ukraine's national identity, questioned by some, was reaffirmed. Twelve months later, we look back on 12 months of destruction, displacement and death. In the years since, the Ukrainian people have suffered immensely. Tens of thousands of people have died and more than 8 million people have been displaced beyond Ukraine's border. The greatest refugee crisis that Europe has seen since the Second World War. And one year on, there is no end in sight to war, despite the lessons Europe should have learned from history about war. There are no winners. Putin did this. He did it because he believed he could. Because he believed that might is right. And that it has the right, as a country to a sphere of obedience beyond its borders. It doesn't. That's the Taoiseach Leo Vradker. We're going to speak now to Jim Roach, PRO with uh, the Irish Anti-War Movement and founding member of uh, the Irish Neutrality League, as well as Senator Gerard Crockwell, independent senator and former member of uh, the Defence Forces. Uh, Good morning to both of you. We've heard from both of you many times in the past, uh, indeed, about uh, this conflict. Uh, I think you both have uh, concerns about how it may escalate out of control. I think both of you would uh, agree that everything that can 
can be done, should be done to stop this becoming uh, another world war or a nuclear war. And indeed, Putin has been rattling his nuclear sabre in the last couple of days. But I think you both come from it from different perspectives. On other ways, Jim Roach, first of all, you believe, do you not, that Ukraine may have to cede some territory? No, not necessarily. And we, we've never, and by the way, good morning to you, man. Good morning to, to Senator Cockwell there. Uh, not necessarily at all. And I mentioned to you previously, there, there was a, a, a peace talks, at, at the peace talks last March that, that um, uh, Turkey brokered. There was, on the, on the table was uh, a neutral Ukraine, uh, but in the EU, uh, some kind of some kind of autonomy for the Donbass uh, and to look at Crimea over a 15-year period. So, um, uh, and a total demilitarization of, of, the, of the area with all, all foreign military, like just the key thing, all foreign military out of Ukraine. So uh, we don't know what will happen. The, the thing is, when, when peace talks start, we, we actually can't predict, right? Uh, and I think, I, I, I mean, we have called for Russian troops to withdraw. We've totally condemned the invasion uh, right from the start. We still do. Mm. Uh, but we've also criticised the escalation by NATO in particular. We, we believe that NATO, the NATO powers are using this as a way, if you like, of weakening Russia. And that's their prime goal here. I question how much they really care about the people of Ukraine. Okay, but uh, if there is to be peace, um, you're uh, of the belief, are you not, uh, that uh, total victory may not be possible? I am totally of that belief. I think it is really, really wrong and really dangerous. That amounts to ceding some territory, though, does it not? No, no, well, I think it's really wrong to be talking of total victory, uh, because what, what is really meant by that is total war and with all the implications that, that come with that of more devastation. And I, look, it's absolutely horrific what has happened to the people of Ukraine. We totally condemn the, the, the war crimes, the devastation of their country. But to talk of like the problem is now this this is a war of attrition now I think uh, you know lots of commentators and political leaders in the West uh, see that we're we're talking about first world war type battles uh, in the trenches uh, and Jared will know more about this than I do you know I'm I'm not a military person but just looking at it, like the scale of the killings is just shocking it's something like uh, you know in the hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Uh, if if you include both sides, so it is shocking. And if if it's if it's escalated further by both sides, this is only going to get worse. And there doesn't seem to be any uh, way that the lines are going to move very much. You know, so it, it is mm. very comparable to to the First World War. And we say, look, there's going to be peace talks at some time. In fact, lots of Western leaders have said this. The, the head of NATO said many months ago. Unless they blow us all to kingdom also, come, which is another prospect. Uh, no, no, but but the fact that they've said it, they've acknowledged that this is going to be solved around uh, a table and with with peace talks. So when we're saying, when is this going to happen? And surely the Irish government should be saying, and Irish politicians should be saying, you know, we as a neutral country can bring something to this. You know, we can we, we can offer something here by um, with our long tradition of uh, peacekeeping and 
uh, our long tradition of neutrality, mm. we can bring something to this table. We can offer the two sides a way, a, 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 a way of mediation. Unfortunately, okay. the way yeah. the Irish government and politicians on, in the government um, side have behaved, it doesn't bode well for that. OK, Jared Crockbelt, what do you think? Uh, is it a, a case that uh, if they don't blow us all to kingdom come, uh, they'll be at this for another three or four years like the other uh, wars in Europe? Uh, and at that stage, uh, if peace talks are successful, that there will have to be some compromise? Uh, good morning to you and your listeners, and good morning to Jim. Uh, Jim and I have uh, debated many times. Look, um, the situation is the war in Ukraine cannot stop. Uh, in in the minds of the Ukrainians, or Ukrainians, it, it cannot stop as long as Russian boots are on their ground. Uh, Jim made the point there that in the peace talks in, in uh, Turkey, uh, there was some autonomy for the Donbass and the Crimean issue would be would take 15 years. My, my analogy there is if I move into your back garden next week and I decide I'm staying there, uh, would you be prepared to allow me some degree of autonomy and stay in your back garden? And maybe we might discuss uh, the extra little bit I take for a vegetable garden uh, uh, as, as over the next 15 years, we might discuss that. Quite frankly, none of us would accept that. Uh, Putin moved into Ukraine in the same way he moved into Georgia in 2008, and we took our eye off the ball in Georgia. And to look at the aerial photography from Georgia is absolutely frightening. They've wiped out entire villages, and it's all now just uh, open ground again. Putin has to be stopped. I, I don't dispute what Jim is saying. NATO is in this to their necks now by the amount of armaments and weapons they're putting in. But Jim made the point that Ireland is a neutral country, and there it stops for me, because, firstly, Ireland was never neutral, not in the Second World War, not ever has there been anything in our constitution or in law that underpins neutrality. That's the first point. The second point is, where the Ukrainian war is concerned, our leading politicians, Tishi, um, Tornishtas, ministers for foreign affairs, have all said that uh, Ireland is not neutral in the case of the Ukrainian war. We are politically neutral and militarily neutral. We provided... We we are not politically neutral, we are militarily neutral, I think is... Uh, yes, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Um, we, we provided military equipment. Okay, it was only flak jackets and uh, bandages and petrol, mm. but we provided equipment to one of the belligerents, and that goes against the principle of neutrality. We are not neutral, neutral in this war. And um, like it or lump it. Uh, we talk about uh, Jim's piece, uh, his press release talks about the 30 soldiers we're sending to Belgium to train uh, Ukrainians. This is totally consistent with uh, our role in peace in the world. What these men are being trained, these men and women are being trained to do, is to disarm some of the 500,000 mines that have been laid on Ukrainian soil so civilians can walk about uh, without injury. Mm. So there is nothing 
inconsistent with our role in peacekeeping in the world in sending those people to train Ukrainians to do this. Jim Roach, Jim Roach uh, respond to that if you will or how the Taoiseach put it in uh, or the Taoiseach put it in uh, the doll yesterday which was that a, a child might uh, be walking around and pick up something that doesn't look like a, a bomb but it is a bomb and suddenly they have their limbs amputated. Do we not defend those people by giving them this expertise? Um, I, I would have no problem with um, Irish bomb disposal experts doing that kind of work as part of a peace process. There isn't a peace process at the moment. There is a war, mm. and there's no uh, attempts by the West, uh, and seemingly by Putin, by Russia, to, to uh, come to the table. So, uh, in principle, I, I, I would have no problem. But at the moment, as long as the war continues, uh, Ireland should not be engaging and, and be seen to engage on one side. That does infringe our neutrality. I take the point about the Constitution. I mean, we have called in as part of our, our statement on neutrality.ie in the Neutr- Irish Neutrality League to, to have a referendum on, on neutrality. And I refer again to the polls, three, three separate polls that were done uh, early last year uh, up to the summer showing a strong majority of Irish people in favour of neutrality. So uh, while, you know, people, can, politicians can argue that Ireland is not a neutral country for, for both in this case and, and in the past, uh, there's um, uh, people, I, I believe the people of Ireland see it very differently. Um, uh, Jim, so I, I, I have to cut across you here for a minute. I'm sorry, because the polls you're talking about, I fully accept that polls were carried out and that they delivered the results that the majority of people re- replying wanted neutrality or saw Ireland as neutral. Did anybody explain to them what the cost of neutrality is? Has, any, has there been an open and honest discussion about how a country establishes its neutrality under the Hague Convention and then defends that neutrality by having sufficient defence within their arsenal to protect their country? No, we, we, we talk about this romantic view of, of neutrality that we're the nice guys of the world and sure nobody would ever hurt us. We've just had our um, Munster Technological University attacked. We've had our health service executive attacked by state-sponsored thugs. But, but are you suggesting that we be invaded uh, as a, a nation um, if we are truly neutral? I, I know what I'm saying, uh, Michael, is that Ireland, uh, this claim of neutrality, mm. it, it doesn't wash. Ireland now, from the point of view of NATO and Russia, is the largest aircraft carrier in the world. Mm. If there is to be a war, yeah. Shannon Airport, Dublin Airport are ideal for launching aircraft either to the... Well, there's nothing in the world that would change that. Yeah, but no, not a thing. But we should... Um, uh, establish ourselves as what we have always been militarily non-aligned mm. and that is that we, we, but we don't have the capacity to defend ourselves against the might of the Russian army or any army most likely in this country well certainly right now we don't even have mm. the capacity to defend those assets we have coming in under the sea our naval service has been depleted from nine ships to four uh, our army is uh, literally falling apart and our air force we don't have the capacity to protect our own mm. skies so talking about neutrality it's a romantic view that I would love I, I, one mm. of the few people who speaks in terms of building our army and building our armaments 
but wanting the country to be neutral. Okay. These two things are not incompatible. Jim Roach, you want to come back there just briefly, if you would, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, I, look, I, 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 well, I welcome these debates. Like, let's have this debate. We, as I've said, we actually want to enshrine it in the Constitution. But I actually disagree with her there. I think neutrality does imbue Ireland with a credible moral authority to oppose the kind of aggression we've seen in Russia. The problem is now it is, um, is right to a degree, it is tainted because of the allowance by various governments of the, U- the facilitation to the US military at Shannon Airport, which we've opposed for the last 20 years. Mm. Uh, like, let's also do a separate thing between, like, who, who, who do the politicians think is going to invade Ireland? You know, this is. The, I mean, they, they, our our history of it is with okay. uh, is is with British colonialism. Okay, I, w- I want to move on from there, Jim, because yeah. uh, Ireland may not uh, exist if there's a, a nuclear war, or may not be worth talking about. Uh, and you're saying get to peace talks before that may happen, Jared oh, Crockwell. You you agree that there's the prospect of, of a, a nuclear war. So, what do we do to prevent it from happening? Well, um, are you asking me first? Jared Crockwell, first Jared, of all. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, I totally agree that there's a very uh, strong likelihood of a nuclear strike, albeit a limited nuclear strike initially, in, in Ukraine as Putin tests the West to see what way they would respond. Uh, we're in very, very dangerous territory at the moment. And um, it, it, it's my view that, you know, we have to, at this stage, as a nation, we have to take a stand. Remember, Russia has threatened us already. Uh, they have told us that by supplying anything to the Ukraine, we leave ourselves open to mm. retaliation from them. Do remember the way the Russian um, uh, ambassador treated the Joint Rockless Committee when he mm. came before us and treated us like... Sure, but, but these things are irreversible. What do you do to prevent that scenario from occurring? If there, a nuclear bomb goes off in Ukraine, whether there's retaliation or not, uh, you're talking uh, about a doomsday scenario for a huge uh, amount of people, for a, a huge portion of this planet. So what do you do uh, uh, before that happens to stop it from happening? You, can, can I come in, Mike? Okay, Jim Roach, yeah. Yeah, okay. you, you have peace talks. That is the only thing you can do. Mm. And you, you have treaties. And we just heard, I think yesterday or two days ago, that, that Putin has now announced he's withdrawing from a treaty. Let us remember that the US and NATO withdrew from two uh, treaties. The, the, inter, the interballistic treaty was one of them. They, they withdrew, mm. uni, sorry, the US withdrew unilaterally. You know, you know so... Uh, we have to recognise here... But how do you have peace talks with somebody you can't talk to or who won't talk I, to you? I, 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 I don't think there is evidence of that. I think there's an awful lot of propaganda out there. I'm right. not putting Putin on a on a platform by any means. I think yep. he's a war criminal. Okay. I'd like to see him in The Hague, along with George Bush and Tony Blair, you know. All right. So, um, OK, let so Jared Crockwell come back there. Fiona, can I just quote... Okay. Fiona Hill, former advisor to, to three presidents, Trump, Obama and Bush, she has said in an interview yesterday or the day before, an absolute victory over Russia is not possible. And what they're, you know, so what NATO is doing now is helping Ukraine to prevent what she calls escalating dominance. And that means this war of attrition with the ultimate danger, as you point out, of a nuclear uh, event, if, if not just a nuclear accident, which would be catastrophic for Ukraine. So that's why the sooner mm. we get to peace talks, the better. Okay. Is there the 
prospect, the potential of peace talks, do you think, Jared Crockwell? I cannot, I cannot see any way uh, forward in peace talks. I fully support a lot of what Jim is saying. Uh, it, it would be great if we could get people to sit around the table and discuss this. I see no possibility whatsoever. I see Ukraine as being in a position that they have no choice but to defend what land they have. And I have spoken to many, many, many Ukrainians nice. on the ground here in Ireland, the young women who are here with their children, whose husbands but if that's right, then the only the, the the only solution, if there is a solution, because if peace talks aren't a solution, the only possible solution is to strike first, is it not? Uh, uh, many would many would think that. I mean, one would hope that uh, the way in which uh, Putin is using his young men and women, throwing them into the field, as Jim points out, in a First World War type situation, is that there will be an internal. Uh, rise against Putin that will put an end to his gallop. Now, who comes in behind him will be a problem for the entire world. It will either be a peace builder or it will be a total lunatic altogether. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you see, that's the problem. Like, that is another, if you like, that's the policy of NATO as well, is to push push, push it so far that the Russian people will rise up and replace Putin. There's absolutely no evidence of that. I, I quoted last week, I quoted the BBC correspondent who's in Moscow and has very decades-long experience. Uh, he said that, there, you know, there is no sign of that despite the, the brave, you know, the small number of brave anti-war protesters who came mm. out at the early stages of the war. But also he pointed out that that the sanctions are not really working. Yeah. And of course, Russia has just pivoted now. It's pivoted to, to China and the Middle East, and it's actually surviving economically. Now that can change, I know, okay. but like, are we really saying this? The, the people of Ukraine and the young Russian soldiers need to suffer more than they have already. We need to get this stopped, and it will be a long, long process. I don't deny that. Look at, look at how long the, the peace the peace in Northern Ireland took. We're coming up to 25. <laughs> yeah, and how fragile it continues to be. Yeah, yeah. Look how long it took and how complex it is. This is going to be even more complex. Okay, I've run over time, so I have to leave it there. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately not something that will be solved in a discussion on a radio programme. I'm not sure if it'll be solved at all or if anybody knows how it might be solved, but thank you both uh, indeed for sharing your thoughts with us uh, today. Jim Roach, PRO with the Irish Anti-War movement, founding member of the Irish Neutrality League. We were also speaking to independent Senator Jared Crockwell who's a member of the Defence Forces. You may be interested to know as well that there are commemorations taking place this evening uh, and indeed over this weekend uh, across uh, the country to mark the invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia. There will be a rally at the Ashburn Library. Uh, That's in Ashburn obviously at half past six this evening. A rally at Market Square in Dundalk uh, at six o'clock this evening and a rally at Monaghan Library at one o'clock this afternoon. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Leo Bradker was in County Loud yesterday turning the sod on uh, the Northern Cross route where he met LMFM reporter Marco Driscoll. The ball of previously you said that you'd support the city status for Drogheda. Is that something that you'd still support? 
well, well, I do, um, but I think it has to be defined as what it is. You know, Drogheda has a population um, of well over 40,000 now. Um, under our rules, once you hit 50,000, you're a census city, so, you know, that's on the way. Um, but there are different types of cities, and what's more important, really, in my view, is how we define that and what it means um, in real terms for people who live in, live in around Drogheda. Uh, and I know uh, Deputy O'Dowd has been doing a lot of work on this, uh, has a bill that he's been developing, um, uh, which would allow us, uh, I think, to have a debate about this. It is complicated, we all know. Uh, those of us who know the geography of this area, and I know it well, um, know that um, uh, uh, anything you do in relation to Drogheda, you have to take account of... Um, uh, well, we take account of <laughs> Bettystown, Laytown and Mornington for a start, which are part of the Drogheda urban area, but are in County Mead. And then you also need to take account of where Midlaud uh, lands and all and that. One of the well. last times you were here was for a march against the violence in the town. Mm. Do you believe Gardaí have successfully overcome that violence? Um, I, I wouldn't say o- overcome yet, um, but I do think a lot of progress has been made uh, you know, since that rally that I attended two years ago here, um, after some terrible events that happened in Drogheda, and I think a lot of progress has been made. Uh, guard resources have been increased significantly. Uh, there have been arrests. There have been prosecutions. Um, really want to thank the Gardaí for the work that they have done to um, help restore law and order here in Drogheda. Um, but we're not claiming victory yet by any means. Um, there's still a lot of criminal activity happening uh, in this town and around Ireland, and that's why we've committed in the budget um, an additional uh, thousand Gardaí being recruited this year. Teacher, Recent teacher, events, there might sorry, be teacher. people out there with information now that might be come forward given yeah, the events in recent weeks absolutely yeah. as always we would encourage people to bring information forward to the Gardaí um, it will be treated in confidence uh, and we can assure you that uh, your identity will be protected and really want to thank people who come forward with information because uh, that's how not only we detect crime but it's how we secure prosecutions um, and it takes a lot of bravery but you're not just doing it for yourself you're doing it for your community as well Sorry, Teacher, one time, final folks, question just you mentioned um, development here today and obviously 5,000 houses but people also need services mm-hmm. very close to us here Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital yeah. residents in the town are very concerned that if Navin A&E closes it's going to put even more pressure on their A&E here what would you say to those residents? Uh, well, well, I shared that concern, uh, quite frankly. Um, you know, when I was um, Minister for Health, I remember uh, Drogheda and Beaumont would have been hospitals that would have topped the league table in terms of uh, patients on trolleys. Um, Drogheda and Beaumont are dramatically improved. Um, that's not to say that people don't still have to spend time on trolleys, but it's much better than it was, uh, in part because of uh, investment in the hospital, clinical leadership, good management, all, all of those things. It does, of course. Uh, and... Um, to be very frank, uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, the government, Mr. Donnelly and others, uh, have resisted um, going as far as the HSE recommended when it comes to change the services at Navin uh, would be one the potential impact on Drada and our, on our Lady of Lords, and also the potential impact on Conley Hospital, which is the hospital in my constituency because a lot of people from Meath uh, already come there, uh, and you don't achieve very much by transferring the risk from one hospital to another. So uh, if further changes are made in Navan, I think we need to be confident that uh, the additional resources are there, both in Drogheda and in Connolly and Blanchestown, uh, to make that work. So would any changes be delayed until then? Um, I don't want to get into the details of it, but yeah. it's more or less what I said. So. That's the Taoiseach, Leo Vratker, responding to questions from LMFM reporter Marco Driscoll. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the peace process took a step backwards uh, this week. Let's speak uh, to the chair of the Rockers Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. <clears throat> 
Excuse me, Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, who's on the line with us now. Good morning, Fergus. Uh, you're calling us uh, from uh, County Tyrone. What has you there today? Yeah, we've had, we, we're on our second day of our visits, Michael. We've been very busy. We, we've met with, there's a group of about 10 of us here from Fine Gael. We have uh, Francis Gerald, the MEP. We have Frankie Fegan, TD. We have Senator John McGahan. We have councillors and we have party members. So we, we're part of a group. We've been working for about three years now, and it just so happens that we happen to be in Newry mm. uh, right now. And I'm sure uh, all the talk has been of this dreadful atrocity, uh, the shooting of uh, Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell. Uh, very, very much so. We've met people of the unionist persuasion, of the nationalist persuasion. We've met business people. We've met the Catholic and the Church of Ireland uh, primates. Uh, and everybody is absolutely shocked, horrified, but also absolutely determined, Michael, to ensure that there's no advantage given to, obviously, the people who carried out this evil act. Like, uh, like the, you know, it's just unbelievable. Um, a father with his young child helping uh, other children to learn to play soccer, putting, mm. putting his footballs in the back of his car once more. How many thousands of dads do that every day in this country? And it's just awful and evil. Apparently they shot him on the ground as well. Mm, so yeah. they were determined to kill him. And thankfully it hasn't happened. But I think it's up to politicians now to to you know, to, to make significant movement. But the difficulty is that may not happen uh, before the local elections in May this year. That's the impression I'm getting. Okay, and when you talk about significant movement, I, I take it politically because uh, the PSNI has obviously been very proactive for arrested already, and uh, I think uh, the theory is is that this is uh, the group calling itself the new IRA that's responsible for this. Uh, is it a, a return to the dark old days? Well, well, it mustn't be, and I think that is the issue. And the guards are cooperating fully as well with with the PS and I. Everybody is is actually horrified with it. But the difficulty is when you have when you don't have a a government, when you don't have assembly in place, when you don't have a place for political discussion and debate, uh, and and for uh, resolving issues locally here in the north, there is a vacuum. And into this vacuum have stepped these gunmen. Mm. And you're absolutely right; they must be given no quarter. And uh, the other side of that is that the Assembly must get up and running. The difficulty is, uh, as I see it, I'm only speaking for myself, there are local elections due. And obviously, clearly, if the DUP say yes and go back in, uh, that will have one impact on the voters. And if they do the opposite, it will have a different impact. Okay. So I think mm. people are angry, uh, you know, that this is the way it is right now. But, you know, how do you resolve it? Okay, but this group doesn't have any political representation in Stormont, does it? No, absolutely not. No, but what I mean, Michael, is that you know a vacuum is where where there is no power base functioning. Mm. Other people will try and manipulate, move into a space, and try and just as what these people are doing. They don't have any support. But you know, when the IRA started up, as you and I know, they didn't have support either. Uh, so you know, we don't want to go back to the evil days that we had. Mm. And I think it, it's up to democratic politicians um, to get in. You know, get get into work and do their jobs, and that isn't happening. Yeah, and I suppose the real fear is uh, that when you have 
uh, an attack like this, uh, which appears to have been because uh, the police officer was involved in cross-border, cross-community work, uh, working uh, with uh, children uh, from all sides of uh, the community, uh, that that was the motivation for it, uh, that there would be retaliation. uh, And therein lies uh, a very significant concern. Absolutely, and that is the serious issue that arises in a community. But from our understanding, from everybody we met yesterday, that, that people's feet are on the ground and they're determined, you know, that that won't happen. And they're determined that, that there are excellent community relations between political parties and also between the churches up here that actually, you know, it's very heartening to, to see and to be part of. Mm. Uh, so, like, you know, what things, you know, there, there's, a lot of, there's an awful lot of good things happening in the north like the, the economy is doing you know is doing very well and you know just there's, there's hope and you know particularly business people are anxious to get on with taking advantage of of the european union and the british market mm. with their special access so there's there's lots of good things happening up there and we can't allow the demand of violence to you know to influence anything further but the political price is get in and do your job and I think that's what everybody wants. And but I'm concerned it may not happen immediately, um, because obviously, you know, it, <coughs> the DUP have a, have a, have extremists to mm. their to their right as well. And if yeah. they go into power and take second place, as they will see it, the, 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 the extremists, uh, you know, that that would create a different problem. So okay. Well, what what, yeah. what role does the Irish government have in this? Uh, should there be dual authority for as long as uh, Stormont continues? Uh, to uh, fail to function uh, because uh, as things stand uh, there's a situation that could be looked on as British rule that will continue indefinitely. Well th- that, that is a huge problem and obviously that leads to people like these getting you know getting getting a government attacking innocent uh, people on the street so I, I think the problem with dual authority while we would all love it I think that could be more more dangerous than you know than not I think the point is you see, the, the difficulty is the DUP have to accept that they have to take the second uh, second role. They're no longer the dominant party. So what we as a government, and all of us in the South actually, we have to make sure that we can reassure unionists as to what the future of the island will be. And there will be a vote at some yeah. stage. Uh, uh, but like we have to show that the, the entitlement of a nationalist to be a nationalist and a unionist to be a unionist, yep. you have to be central to all of that. Well, you have to convince them that they aren't second-class citizens of the United absolutely. Kingdom. Absolutely. Mm. absolutely. But, but, if they, but, but if they're leaving Europe in a way that's different than the rest of the United Kingdom, you've got a job in your hands convincing them of that. You have, Michael, and the point, one, the point was made to us recently in one of our meetings to the Irish ambassador in, in, in Canada participating in our Rockets Committee and uh, he made the point that perhaps we should be looking at uh, places like Canada, where you have, you know, where you have a confederation of, of entirely different political ideals. You know, like you have French Quebec and you have English-speaking Canada, and how they're able to work together. In other words, I personally, I think we have to find a solution that will have a significant power base in in a future island confederation where Belfast will be a very important central part, you know, of our all of our politics. And obviously, the unionist people will have to have a very clear and and lasting role in in that. So, how do you how do you, you know, how do you mm. propose that 
that's that's the way I see it happening. Okay, well, I, I know that everybody is appalled by what happened in Oma, all the more striking that it was in Oma and in front of yes. such yes. young children. All of sure. the children, I think, were under the age of 15. Interesting to hear you say as well that the DUP has to accept uh, that Sinn Féin will be the lead party in uh, the next government instalment. Is it a similar message uh, you'd be giving to your party leadership? Uh, opinion poll this week in the Irish Times showing Sinn Féin as, as the largest party by far uh, or, or uh, do you think uh, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will be able to come together and keep them out of power? Well that's, that's a very good question and I've no doubt that there weren't uh, you know that the, that the analysis uh, does actually show at this time what the position is but the good news is Michael for Fine Gael, that they were up at four points uh, but you know the reality is we're two years from the election uh, our, between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, we have, I think, something like 40%, but we are separate independent parties. There is an option for Fianna Fáil, and they're not ruling it out, uh, going into government, which in vain, so that's a possibility. But like for us in Fianna Gael, we have to continue our work on the economy, we have to continue creating jobs, and we have to continue, you know, making sure that the houses are built, um, and I think yesterday the visit of the Taoiseach and, 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 and uh, the Minister for Housing to Drada was significant in that the 5,000 homes that are going to be built north of Drada, the roadway has has commenced. Uh, so we just have to do our work, Michael, mm. and we have to keep appearing on your show. <laughs> <laughs> and will, will Fergus O'Dowd be appearing on the show after the next election? Do you intend to run? Yes. Well, I mean, I've certainly appeared on it before. Oh no! But do you, will you be standing? Will you be sta- will you be standing in the next general election? Yes, Michael. For absolute total clarity, I will be appearing. Hopefully, after it as well. The question is, people have to elect me. So yes, I, I hope to stand. It's my intention to stand. Obviously, you have to be selected. Uh, but I, I love my work, Michael, and I love appearing on your show. I couldn't imagine that I wouldn't be honest in the future. Um, but look, the truth is, I will definitely be standing. Um, and obviously, I'm enjoying. Obviously, I'm enjoying the work. Uh, I'm up here in the north for two days. Uh, next week, we'll be up at the Alliance Party conference. You know, I'm, I'm very active and very involved. And you know, I, I really, you know, it's it's. I've been doing this all my life, and I just love it. Finnegale TD for loud Fergus O'Dowd, the chair of uh, the Eroxus Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the war on drugs has failed and uh, the Dáil has agreed to establish a citizens' assembly on drugs in the coming weeks to look at the situation in this country and recommend what to do instead. The terms of reference were explained to the Dáil by the Minister with Responsibility for Drugs, Hildegard Nocton. The terms of reference state that the Assembly shall consider and make recommendations in respect of changes the state might make to significantly reduce the harmful impacts of drugs use on individuals, families, communities and wider society. In its considerations, the Assembly will be asked to take into account the implications for the health, justice and education systems. Part of the Assembly's work will be in developing an understanding of the lived experience of individuals, families and communities impacted by illicit drug use. This is hugely important. The voices of those most affected by illicit drugs use must be heard if the Assembly is to deliver on its mandate. 
Alongside this, the members will be asked to consider a range of perspectives on drugs use, both from a national viewpoint, but also from experiences across Europe and internationally. It will also consider the efficacy of current responses to drug use and best practice in promoting and supporting rehabilitation and recovery from drug addiction. Now, this announcement was broadly welcomed and many TDs had much to say about what they hoped the Assembly would achieve. Here's Sinn Féin's Mark Ward. Everything that we have in our community today, ordinary people like my parents, I see Gino, uh, Gino Kenny here, his parents and the ordinary people around my area had to come out and fight to a nail for. And fight, they did. They fought for schools, they fought for something as simple as bus routes, access to local health services, community centres, everything, basically everything that the government failed to provide for. And unfortunately, many of our young people ended up in addiction over the years. Addiction that began as a way to escape the poverty and the trauma. Sometimes this escape multi-generational trauma of industrial schools, Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes. Drugs give people the ability to self-soothe and to give calm to an anxious inner world. They walk until they stop walking and then the problems begin. I worked for years in addiction centres right across Dublin as a counsellor, key worker, outreach worker and as a manager. And I know the work our frontline services put in to help people addicted to drugs, their family and our wider communities. I welcome that we are now going to have a grown-up conversation on drugs in the form of a citizens' assembly. Every voice must be represented at this assembly. We have heard many calls of legalisation, decriminalisation, regulation and healthcare approach when it comes to drug use and these voices must be represented. That's her, the Labour Party's thoughts on this grown-up conversation. Here's Aon O'Riordan. We are talking here about a central issue of inequality. If this comes down to a debate about drugs are bad for you, stop taking them, then it's a waste of oxygen. What we need to have is a realistic debate. Lots of people are taking drugs. Lots of people from all sorts of professions are taking drugs. Lots of people from different parts of the country are taking drugs. Lots of people from different age groups are taking drugs. But we treat people from a disadvantaged background differently because you go down to any court in the country and you'll find it stuffed full of poor, sick people who don't belong there. So our thesis is, and I think it's replicated across this house, is that we can have a health-led approach an exclusively health-led approach to those who are in addiction and get rid of the criminalization and the criminal justice approach to it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. But, Minister, we have to do it, and it has to happen in the, in the timeline of Disaractus. Otherwise, the body count is just going to pile higher and higher and higher, and none of us can have that on our conscience. A health-led approach, uh, an approach a lot of uh, TDs agreed with. Let's hear the thoughts of People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny now. The system is, uh, is, is, fa- is, a fa- is a failure. And, you know, in the last 50 years, uh, void the misuse of drug act, uh, we look at the proliferation of all drugs. In the last 50 years... Exponentially, the demand for drugs across the world has risen. It's almost it's impossible to stop uh, drug demand, the sale of drugs, and so forth. And I think uh, even the president of Colombia, I mean, Colombia has suffered absolutely terribly in the last number of decades in relation to uh, the narco wars. They've lost hundreds of thousands of people. And even the president of Colombia is saying, look at. Look, man, this policy just ain't working anymore. We have to do something different. And I believe other countries now are following suit to look at something different models. The model uh, is kind of decriminalisation. But again, Minister, I kind of emphasise that regulation, looking at how you take control back from the kind of the mirage of the black market. Because the black market are a small amount, a tiny small amount of people have enriched themselves through violence and vast amount of money. It's incredible the amount of money they have. They're so powerful. But the only way to undermine them is taking control back. Because if you don't take control back, they will always have control. So you need to take control back. That's Gino Kenny. There was little in the way of argument. Here's Fianna Falls, Paul McAuliffe. We all consume alcohol, or many people consume alcohol, and we know the negative impact it has. Many people smoke tobacco, and we know the negative impacts that that has. So saying that it should not be a criminal offence for people to use um, uh, some of the current illegal substances, does not. it's not an endorsement of the use of those substances, it's an endorsement of a compassionate approach to those people who find themselves having problematic drug use. Just think, if you or your son or your daughter, your mother, your aunt, found themselves in a position where they had a problematic drug use, do you want the guard calling to their door or do you want a counsellor or a nurse or a doctor? And that very simply answers the question, do we want a justice-led approach or a health-led approach? But politicians can't hide behind that phrase, a health-led approach. We actually have to spell out what it actually means. And I believe decriminalisation of the person is that necessary first step. Let's hear some of the contributions from some of our local TDs next. First of all, independent Peter Fitzpatrick. The drug war in my constituency of Loudon East Mead is fighting. Drugs are everywhere, and the likes of heroin are becoming more common. It is crucial that we keep on top of new substances coming on stream and, to, and their transition into the community. Sharing of information and intelligence, both nationally and internationally, has been very useful. 
Policy must incorporate operational responses to drug use, taking in consideration the implementation for health, chemical adjustments and education systems. Many people who use drugs uh, problematically come into contact with criminal justice system and acquire criminal convictions either directly or indirectly relating to the drug use. I see this daily. The, the scale of societal problems around drugs is such that it now needs a dedicated resource to drive change. This assembly and government intervention. A critical element of the, of the assembly on drug use is the, is the cooperation and collaboration between the departments, agencies and support services. A coordinated of government approach is required alongside strategy bodies and civil society. For example, a young girl came into my into see me recently who had a problem with alcohol. She's only 18 years of age. Her parents threw her right. I rang the parents and they, they wanted nothing to do with her. I contacted my local home, homeless centre and they told me the girl had serious drink problem and she was in the same community hostel but they threw her right because she was drinking again. She came back to see me. Where does this young girl go from here? Nobody seems to want to know anything about this young girl. Neither the HSE nor the mental health services. She's only 18 years of age. She slept for three nights on top of a new Halliday Mills apartment block in Key Street in Dock. The system does not work. Certainly doesn't if uh, that's uh, the way it's meant to work. Uh, there was also some reflection on what's been happening locally when Fine Gael's Fergus O'Dowd made this contribution. I think I can reflect, like my colleague Deputy Fitzpatrick, on issues in my own constituency, on I suppose what brought not just Drogheda, where I live, to national attention, but international notoriety in the context of the murder of Keane Mulready Woods, who was a young person, a child, who was murdered as a result of a drug feud. And I suppose that epitomised how low uh, those people who are involved in criminal gangs, in the drug trade, how low they can go. Uh, and it was just shocking and appalling murder. And our town was riddled with, and is still riddled with drugs, unfortunately. But at that time, we were short a significant investment from the Gardaí. There now has been an increase in the numbers of the Gardaí dealing with the drug trade in Drogheda. It's increased by over 47 Gardaí. 18 of those, I think, are community Gardaí. There's been a significant response to that murder, and it is very successful and very helpful in that respect. The debate of the, of the actual uh, Citizens' Assembly must encompass listening to the real witnesses who deal with criminality on a day-to-day -day basis. With the Gardaí, and I could I suggest the name of former Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan, who fought and fought for all his life, but particularly in his latter years in Drogheda, he's retired now, these drug gangs, and he's put most of them behind bars. And Sinn Féin's Rory O'Muraku wanted something to be done to protect ordinary people from these drug gangs. We all welcome the Citizens' Assembly on drugs happening. The war on drugs is dead and buried. Um, we know that we need health-led initiatives, but I will ask the question specifically about drug debt intimidation. It's a particular issue, and we need to ensure that it is front and centre in relation to this particular Citizens' Assembly. And then we need action afterwards, not just reports. Just on that final point in terms of drug debt, drug debt intimidation, absolutely agree that's something the Commission or the, the Citizens' Assembly needs to, needs to examine as part of its work. 
That's uh, the Taoiseach, of course. Uh, thanks uh, to Trevor, who's WhatsApping us, saying, free the weed. And uh, another text that comes to us uh, from James and Drogheda uh, about uh, Ukraine, asking, uh, could I clarify if we were talking about Ukraine or Northern Ireland, because it all sounds very similar. Uh, we t- Tom in touch with us saying, Claire Daly is right. Peace talks is the only way to end this war. Not more tanks or bullets for that matter, says Tom. Thank you if you have been in touch. If you haven't been and you'd like to make comment, our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. 086 if you want to text or WhatsApp or email Michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. A year on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's speak to the Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh. And good morning to you, Bishop Michael Reuter, and thanks for joining us, uh, not just uh, on uh, the first anniversary of uh, the war, but over the course of Lent. The message from Catholic bishops is that refugees and peace need prayers, charity and sacrifice for that matter. Yeah. Hello, Bishop Reuter. Um I say you've uh, said that refugees need peace, prayers, charity and sacrifice. Very much so. I mean, Lent began on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and uh, it's been a sombre beginning to the season of Lent because there is so much, uh, so many problems really in the world in which we live in today. Um the most serious, of course, is what's happening in, in Ukraine, but there are other very serious problems around the world as well, particularly various different wars that are still rumbling on in various parts of the world. Mm. And also we have starvation and hunger and famine that's still going on. I mean, the focus of the Toker Lenten campaign, which is set a number of months in advance, is on Somalia this year. Uh, in Africa, and uh, the situation there is really quite dire at the moment with with so many people in danger, their lives in danger from starvation because of of a terrible famine that is there and, um, you know, civil war that's rumbling on in that country all the time and which has really caused many of the the problems that the people are suffering. So it is a sombre beginning to the the season of Lent. We have so many difficulties here at home as well, as you know, Um, you know, we still have a, a housing crisis. We still have a cost of living crisis. Uh, it's it's not easy. So, mm. but having we're, said we're, that, we are relatively well off. We're very lucky in this part of the world when you look at uh, some of uh, the terrible things that are happening, as you say, in Somalia, the Horn of Africa, generally in Ukraine, of course, uh, in Yemen, uh, and indeed in Afghanistan. Yes, we. We're very, more than relatively lucky in a sense, we're very lucky really. Uh, We live now in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, So that puts a certain responsibility on our shoulders in a sense to to do what we can uh, politically to uh, alleviate a lot of the suffering in the world, but also uh, to make our own contribution to that as well. Uh, whether it's um, through our thoughts and our prayers and uh, our our specific uh, uh, contributions, financial contributions, whatever it may be, uh, to charitable funds. I think it's very important uh, during Lent that we we reflect on that and that we we, um, try to 
to act upon it. And you're emphasising the position that refugees find themselves in. Yes. I mean, as I say, we have so many difficulties in the world, and one of the um, side effects of that is that there are a huge number of of, uh, migrants and refugees around the world. And um, it's such a difficult situation. We can't really, I suppose, appreciate fully because we... We live in a, in a relatively stable society. We can't appreciate fully uh, what the effects of, of war and famine are and uh, how it forces people to leave everything that they knew behind them and uh, to basically throw themselves on the mercy of others to go abroad, uh, to try and to seek refuge somewhere where at least their basic, basic needs are, are met and they have some level of security. So, you know, the geopolitical situation in the world at the moment is pretty dire and we have huge numbers of refugees and um, we have to to be conscious of Mm. of their plight, Uh, constantly conscious of their plight. And does that include uh, people from Palestine? We've seen terrible atrocities over the last week. Does it include people from Georgia or other safe countries like Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, we, we we, we can't really make differences between people in a sense, uh, differentiate between them and say one is more deserving than the other. Um, you know, people, as I say, right across the world are facing dreadful situations. And uh, I mean, in order to for people to, to leave their country, something terrible has to be happening, you know, to flee everything that they know and love and uh, where they feel at home. Um, something has happened in order for that to happen. So we have to have uh, sympathy and compassion for refugees from whatever part of the world they come from. Mm. You do hear people saying that they're not real refugees. They're fake UGs, I think, is a term I've heard used. There's always that possibility that there are some, uh, but I, I don't think so, Michael. I don't think across the board we could say that that the vast majority have very good reason for for leaving their uh, their countries. Mm. Uh, I know there may be economic refugees in the sense of trying to improve their loss, but when you think about it, uh, so many Irish people did that over the years, over the, the past two centuries, uh, left this country because it provided very little opportunity uh, for them, and they went to America and to Australia and to New Zealand and to, mm. to Britain and uh, found a home there and found a welcome there and it wasn't without challenges, it was always difficulties wherever they went but uh, they were able to contribute uh, hugely to those societies where they where they went mm. uh, and, and that contribution is still valued in most of those countries today. Indeed, uh, I suppose it's worth uh, remembering as well the situation that uh, some people find themselves in in some of uh, these so-called safe countries, uh, certainly for members of uh, the LGBTIQ community. uh, They are very difficult places uh, to live uh, and people are fleeing uh, and they are in this country uh, legally. They're legally entitled to be here uh, and we have an international obligation to a 
accommodate them and uh, to facilitate them. And it's very interesting uh, that we talked to you today on uh, the first anniversary of uh, the invasion of Ukraine, Bishop Reuter, because there's a poll in the Irish Times today that says 79% of people, the vast majority of people in this country, believe that Ireland should live up to its international obligations. That's encouraging, isn't it? It's very encouraging, yes. And and I can see where that's, where that's coming from and, and I can understand that because Irish people uh, are, are very generous uh, in their response to, to people who are, who are suffering or who find themselves in difficulties no matter what part of the world it may be in. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is very heartening. Um, you know, you, you can understand that, that some people maybe uh, are finding it a, a bit of a challenge considering the difficulties and the mm. issues that we have here in the country at the moment, particularly around the whole uh, issue of housing. So there, you know, there are people who are feeling very insecure and I suppose have a little bit of frustration and anger, uh, but, and they have every right to express that and to, you know, to express that to their politicians and to protest if they wish, wish peacefully, but certainly not to take it out on, on refugees or to focus their anger on refugees in, in any way, shape or form. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm mm. very heartened by that figure and uh, I think the Irish people have responded remarkable, remarkably well. Mm. Uh, to to this crisis. In the that, that, same, that same Irish Times Ipsos poll says that 70% say that protests should not be uh, allowed outside of uh, direct provision centres, places where refugees and asylum seekers are being accommodated. 24% say they should be allowed. Uh, what do you make of that, Bishop Bruter? Well, I, I don't think they should be allowed at all uh, outside of, of, of places where, where refugees have been housed. These people have been true enough already. Uh, they're in a very vulnerable situation, and uh, it just is plain wrong uh, to 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 put them under that uh, sort of pressure and and to um, to threaten them. I mean, a lot of these people are coming from places where their lives uh, were in danger uh, from various different uh, groups and maybe uh, from you know state-sponsored uh, terrorism in in a way and. Uh, you know, to do that to people like in those sort of situations is, is you know, it's appalling, really. I, I don't agree with that. Mm. I think people have a right to protest if they mm. wish. If they feel strongly, yes, they do. But uh, they protest peacefully and they protest in the appropriate uh, locations. And with the people who can actually uh, be influenced by their protests in the sense. So, Are you asking people not to protest outside of uh, direct provision centres uh, on behalf of uh, the Catholic Church, on behalf of the hierarchy? Oh yes, I, I, definitely not. No protest should be aimed at uh, people who are as vulnerable, vulnerable as refugees. Okay. Definitely not. No. Yeah, you're also reflecting uh, this Lent on peace on the silent and the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, ironically uh, and tragically, uh, we're talking to you today as Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell uh, remains critically ill in hospital after this dreadful shooting up in Oma. What are your thoughts on that? I'm sure you'll be hoping, like the rest of us, that we're not returning to the dark days uh, that many of us thought were relegated to the past. Yes, you've captured it perfectly there, Michael. I mean, we did think these days were very much 
uh, in the past and I'm absolutely appalled by what happened uh, in Oma uh, on Wednesday night and uh, it was it's, it's dreadful to, to, to attack a, a man who is a servant of the community in, in so many different ways uh, in, in any circumstances but to attack him in the way that they did in front of children in front of his own son was absolutely disgusting and appalling and there is just there is no reason that can uh, you know excuse that in any way shape or form I'm delighted to see that uh, up to four people have been uh, detained for for that uh, terrible crime and hopefully we'll see a resolution uh, very very quickly and that the people who were responsible for this would be brought to, to justice very quickly. Um, yeah, we, it just shows you, though, that that um, the peace in Northern Ireland, we've become very used to it, and we can thank the Good Friday Agreement for that. It has laid a very good foundation uh, for peace in Northern Ireland over the past 25 years. Um but, the, but that piece is still fragile. We, we can't become complacent. Uh, we can't take it for granted. And um, the Archbishop Eamon, in his message for the beginning of Lent, uh, he, he asks us all to reflect on our own attitudes and our own words and to try and to sow, to sow peace uh, and love wherever we can and to be careful about the things that we say, particularly on social media, I suppose social media has given people a platform uh, to say things, and sometimes people forget uh, that the words that they can use, uh, the sentiments that they express on social media can have uh, a very serious effect uh, on people. So we, we all have to, to continue to work hard for peace uh, and uh, to, to, to realise that uh, the peace that we have built over the past 25 years in this country uh, should not be taken for granted, and that is still fragile. And we're particularly going through a, a difficult time now trying to uh, deal with the uh, unfortunate effects of Brexit. Bishop Reuter, thank you indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank That's you. That's the Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh, Michael Reuter. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, three separate reports from HICWA this week show that staffing levels in Irish hospitals are unsafe. We'll speak to the Irish Nurses and Midwives organisation in a moment. But first of all, let's hear from the Thonish. There's been unprecedented investment actually since this government came into office in our health services. The emergency waiting times and the large numbers attending uh, is a cause of concern, and particularly in some hospitals, in the University Hospital Limerick and and Cork University Hospital and, and Emergency Hospital and others. Um, it also needs to be pointed out that activity levels in our hospitals has gone up significantly. Um, and obviously post-COVID, there has been a significant impact on our hospitals and COVID continues to have an impact and has had an impact over the last winter period. Uh, over a thousand beds uh, have been provided since this government came into office. A thousand beds, which you uh, omitted to acknowledge uh, in your comments, giving the impression that no beds at all um, were, were, were put. But we need to do more. And we will provide more beds uh, in answer, direct answer to your question. We will provide more beds and more capacity. 
That's Micheál Martin speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Tony Fitzpatrick, uh, Director of Professional Services with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, is on the line. And a very good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Uh, a lot done, but uh, as uh, the Thonish just said, there are more to do. Yeah, you're doing the old Finnafall slogan in, in, in that regard. But the reality is, it is acknowledged there have been a thousand additional beds uh, put into the system, but a thousand additional beds is grossly insufficient based on, and in fairness to Tanisha, he alluded to it there, there's been an increase in activity post-COVID-19. There's been a lot of pent-up demand during the COVID, um, COVID period, which is, which is ongoing, but a lot of things were cancelled. Um, a lot of procedures, a lot of elective work were cancelled during the COVID period, and that backlog needs to be needs to be cleared. We've had a, a period of a lack of investment around 2012 for about four or four years, and all of that has been. So let's let's be clear about this: the activity levels in our hospitals are going to continue to increase, and they have increased every year <clears throat> since we've been talking about these issues. Um, the population, the CSO data is very clear, is continuing to get older, and it's going to put more demand on our health service. What we need is the HSE to get ahead of, or the government to get ahead of that to ensure that we have sufficient beds that are properly staffed within the system. And you talked about uh, in your intro, Michael, the HICWA report. Mm. There have been 10 HICWA reports in the last 11 months, and the HSE has not been found to be compliant in any of those reports. So whether it's Tala, Vincent's, Cork, Kerry, Limerick, all of those have found that, they, for example, their emergency departments are unsafe, they're overcrowded, they're unsafe for patients, they're unsafe for staff, they have insufficient staff in place to look after the activity that's coming into those emergency departments. Mm. And that's putting massive pressure on the staff in the front line. So Despite the biggest health budget ever. Uh, yes. Uh, and it continues to grow every year and uh, about 24 billion this year, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, there, there's little doubt that there is a significant budget being allocated uh, with regards to health. But unfortunately, what, what continues to happen uh, within the health service is that there's plans put in place. They're not fully implemented. There's new plans then. They're not fully implemented. And, you know, we can go back and, Michael, we've talked about this for, for years um, the northeast is an example. So there was a Teamworks report. There was going to be a new regional hospital built. There was lots of build-up to that. It didn't happen. And then de facto, Drogheda became the regional hospital. They built on an additional wing. But again, it's ad hoc planning. And people have suffered then as a result of that. So I think the key thing is that what we need is we need improved infrastructure. We need a clear capital plan that builds the additional capacity, not just the acute services, but in the community and step down, all of those services as well. And we need a clear workforce plan that says, right, we need these additional beds, whether it's ICU beds or theatres mm. or whatever it is. We need X amount of nurses and doctors and allied health professionals uh, and support workers to put that in place. And that needs to be clearly set out in a multi-budgeted, multi-year um plan with regards to that and that that's really important that that happens yeah, and you can't do one without the other there's no point in having a hospital bed if it's not manned uh yeah. what is it how many uh, nurses are, are needed per bed well it, it depends on the scenario but if you were opening um, a bed um an icu bed mm. um what, what you, you you have to remember that these beds have to be manned on a 24 7 basis um so there is no point 
that you just open up a bed and hope that you'll have the staff. You need a plan that sets out, okay, that, that's in ICU, it's one-to-one care in order mm. to provide proper care. Therefore, you need a nurse on a 24-7 basis. Uh, and, you know, the whole time equivalent to do that on a 24-7 basis, you know, you're talking about seven nurses. So mm. that, that, for, for, to, for that to be covered. So, you know, mm. it is... Or, or, or three on an acute ward, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, the, uh, and it depends on... With, with regards to that and, and it is, it's important to say for medical and surgical wards and for emergency departments there is a staffing framework that's accepted by the government um, that sets out what the staffing requirements are for the ED presentations mm. and the triage categories that come into EDs and on medical and surgical wards there is a nursing hours per patient day that sets out this is the staff you need to look after this the key thing is that that needs to be fully implemented and the difficulty today it is that it's not it has to a significant extent in Model 4 hospitals, but Model 3 and Model 2, that needs to follow, uh, follow on. And we need proper staffing within our emergency departments in compliance with that framework as well. Okay. And the best way to decide whether you have enough staff or not is at the bedside. And what staff are clearly saying to us is, and members working on the front line is, within our EDs, and HICWA are backing this up, and in our medical and surgical wards, we're short staff on a continuous basis, that's making our work life extremely difficult and it's making people consider leave the, leave the service. Okay, what were you talking about? Hundreds of staff? Uh, and uh, how do you recruit uh, the staff necessary? Yeah, and, and that is a challenge. Our view on this is that we need to train more nurses. So there are pre-nursing courses all over this country. Um, Drogheda is no, no exception to that. Um, and what often happens is people go do their pre-nursing courses, etc., and then have to go overseas in order to train as a nurse. In addition to that, the CAO applications, you have, uh, there's, there, there's five applicants for every one place. So we need to radically grow our undergraduate uh, training places for nurses and midwives in order to ensure that we have sufficient staff in four or five years' time uh, to look after all of these additional beds. And, and that, that's the difficulty. We need a coherent, coherent plan where we rapidly increase our undergraduate places, but we improve the pathways into it um, as well. You know, there is a sponsorship programme where HCAs can go on and train up um, as nurses, but there's, the HCA only provides 30 places per year. That needs to be radically increased, and indeed ourselves and SIP2 have been calling for that for years. That's, that's one thing that needs to happen. We need to grow our own. There is a worldwide shortage of nurses, mm. um, and you know the HSC is paying significant amount of money to agencies, uh, tens of thousands, to go and recruit nurses overseas. But we need to ensure that that's done ethically because we don't want to deprive those health services of their staff as well. So the best way is that we need to increase the training places and ensure that all those uh, young girls and boys that are doing pre-nursing courses, that are applying to do nursing and midwifery, get places and are able to train up to ensure that we have a health service in the future that can meet the demand. If it was possible to recruit enough nurses, uh, would that solve the problem in itself? Going back to the infrastructure, do we need more hospitals? Well, I think what we need, we most certainly need more uh, capacity within our acute hospital systems. You know, there have been promises of this uh, three elective hospitals. Um, again, we keep hearing that, you know, sites have been selected and, uh, you know, this is going to happen in Galway, uh, Cork and Dublin. But again, we haven't seen any sod turned. We haven't seen any uh, blocks on the ground. 
Um, what we need is that that infrastructure is brought. So that the, what, what that does is that means that people on waiting lists for elective procedures can get in and have those done and they're not hampered by the overcrowding within our emergency departments. So we definitely need additional capacity, better bed flow or patient flow to ensure that patients get access to a bed in a timely manner. And I think it, it is a disgrace that we have this level, you know, this week, over 600 people on trolleys waiting for a hospital bed. We have the HICWA report saying how dangerous that is for the patients and for the staff. And yet there's no urgent action been taken to address the capacity issue and to address also ensuring that we have a workforce plan to meet those demands. And the other thing that's important is the staff that are already working within the health service. We need to ensure that they stay. And when the conditions are poor and when you have overcrowding, staff are going to leave. And another thing that's really annoying, uh, nurses and midwives and actually all healthcare workers. So, Michael, you'd be familiar that there is a public service um, agreement. There are pay rises awarded to public servants as a result, whether they're teacher guards, um, you know, local authority workers, etc., the, the nurses and midwives and all healthcare workers were due a pay rise of 1% last October. HSE payroll has still not paid that pay increase to those staff. So that was allowed the 1st of October. They still haven't received their pay increase. There's another pay rise due uh, in March of 2%, and they're indicating that they won't be able to pay that either. So we have nurses and midwives, doctors, uh, physios, OTs, um, support workers, healthcare assistants, clerical admin staff, all working within the HSE who are not getting their full wages since last October. And that's a disgrace because we've raised it at every forum and they still haven't been paid their proper, proper wages months on. And I think that's completely unacceptable. Yeah. And again, as ah, that's an interesting wrong. word. That's a, an interesting word. Uh, <laughs> you were preempting uh, where my mind was going because uh, I think we're going to see this situation, correct me if I'm wrong, continue for some time to come, which means we've accepted the situation. One of these days, however, we're going to have trolley figures uh, that will have broken records and we'll have people lining up to say it's unacceptable, which of course is a nonsense uh, if you uh, just wait for it to happen rather than preempting it and deciding that it's not acceptable to be in that situation. Absolutely. And and we, we have that so now we have our, our healthcare workers who are working in a, a cost of living crisis that exists um, and they're not being treated properly. And our patients come into our emergency departments um, and, and coming to our hospitals aren't being treated properly because the staff aren't there. But in addition to that, they're going to leave the service. And the reality is this, that unless there's a clear plan, like all that's required is the government that comes out and says, we accept that we haven't met the target of the bed capacity report in 2008 and 2018, but we are going to build the infrastructure. We're going to build it in whatever sites around the country that it's required because they've done the survey. They know where mm. the demand is and they talk about increased demand on a continuous basis. Well, that's fine. Let's build the infrastructure, whether it's the primary care centres or whether it's the, the acute hospital bed or whether whatever is required. Let's set that out clearly. These are the beds we're going to build and over the next three years, 
this is the amount of beds that are going to come in stream. In addition to that, we're going to have a workforce plan to ensure that we have those staff in place to open up all of those beds and infrastructure. Otherwise, we're just going to head into next winter. And what our members are clearly telling mm. they are not going to tolerate a winter like they've just tolerated, completely unacceptable, record levels of overcrowding, and that needs to change. Okay. So it's not about yeah. us beating up on government. Yeah. It's we just want them to actually put a coherent plan in place mm. so that we can see there's a light at the end. And acting on the words, uh, which for I don't know how many years now has been that these problems are unacceptable. Tony, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us You're this very morning. Welcome. Thank Tony you. Fitzpatrick, Director of Professional Services with the INMO. That's the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Breda, who's been laughing out loud and in between uh, the giggles uh, texted to say the INMO and the HSE count patients waiting on trolleys differently. I think what it is is that they count the patients on trolleys at different times and then come up with different numbers of people who are waiting for a hospital bed. Margaret in touch saying Putin lamented the fall of the USSR and the Berlin Wall. He said in a speech the other day that he was defending the fatherland by waging war against Ukraine. Putin is a despot tyrant who doesn't want peace. He wants the USSR back together and if he's not stopped he may succeed. Thanks indeed Margaret uh, for your text today the 24th of February a year on since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is how the Kiankorla marked the anniversary in the Dáil yesterday. Before moving to leaders questions I want to take the opportunity to welcome to the distinguished visitors gallery uh, Ambassador Larissa Garasco uh, our valued friend, representative of the government and people of Ukraine, and to the gallery above very many members of the International Diplomatic Corps, you're all very welcome. Last Friday, colleagues, I had the honour of visiting the memorial in Hiroshima to the victims of the atomic bomb. I laid a wreath at the Cenotaph on behalf of the 160 members of this House and the people we have the honour to represent. And I had the enormous heart rend and I heard, excuse me, the enormous heart-rending uh, story of Hibagusha, Ms. Yoshita Kamimujimoto, a 92-year-old lady who miraculously survived the atomic bomb. The Cenotaph is a simple yet beautiful arc Underneath it is a stone coffin inscribed with the words, Let all the souls here rest in peace, for we shall not repeat the evil. 336,000 names of people who died following that bomb are registered at that site. 78 years after the atomic bomb was dropped, we are witnessing a new evil with the war in Ukraine. For the past year, a sovereign democratic state, a member of our European family, has been the victim of unspeakable acts of brutality perpetrated by Russia and its proxy forces. Just as innocent men, women and children were slaughtered in Hiroshima, innocent men, women and children are being indiscriminately killed in Ukraine by missiles and drones. We think of the immense human suffering with casualties in the hundreds of thousands and millions of innocent people displaced. Ireland is a militarily neutral country, but we will never be politically neutral where there is such a flagrant disregard 
for international law. To equivocate in the face of evil is to condone it. To stand idly by is to abandon innocent people to terror and death. And as I speak to you today in this House, I am conscious that there are parliamentarians in another House, the Russian Duma, 450 of them, who are in a position to exert influence in relation to the war in Ukraine. And I urge them to find some courage, because amongst their ranks, there must be some members with courage and integrity and some sense of morality, and ask them to speak out and name the reality of what is being done ostensibly in the name of the Russian people. And as we mark the first anniversary of Russia's unlawful and brutal war, we remember and stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We acknowledge the generosity of the Irish people and their kindness and welcoming spirit in having almost 77,000 Ukrainian displaced people in our country at this present time. Colleagues, can I ask you all to rise in respectful silence for the victims of this unjustified war and in support of those who are courageously defending the values which we all cherish. Ciancorla Shano Farail starting that minute's silence uh, in uh, the Dáil yesterday marking that one year anniversary this day a year ago on uh, the 24th of uh, February the Russian invasion of Ukraine Viva Ukraine Maggie McGuire researched today Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael Godwilling we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.